Good morning. Uh, I'm going to try to uh, take up where Neil left off and shift a bit more to uh, from economics to morals, politics, and education. <clears throat> we face, as Neil pointed out, an exceptional choice in election 2016. Many informed voters think that this exceptional choice portends the demise of American exceptionalism. I think we should be cautious about such a hasty judgment, and I think we do well to recall some, some wide, wise words of President Ronald Reagan. In 1983, Reagan delivered a speech to the National Association of Evangelicals in Orlando, Florida. It was in that speech that he called the Soviet Union an evil empire. The intellectuals were appalled. Then Reagan made matters worse. He said that communism is another sad, bizarre chapter in human history whose last pages, even now, are being written. The intellectuals hooted with derision. Only a dunce, they thought, could utter such fatuous nonsense. Six years later, the Berlin Wall was dismantled. Nine years later, the Soviet Union evaporated into thin air. America had won the Cold War. Apparently, the so-called dunce, President Reagan, knew something about liberty and tyranny that had escaped the attention of many members of the American intellectual class. This tells us something important about Reagan's virtues and something also important about the shortcomings of America's intellectual class. To anticipate my conclusion, nothing is more important to the preservation, the, restora- the preservation of American exceptionalism than the repair of American higher education. Nothing is more important to the preservation of American exceptionalism than the repair of American higher education. All the other reforms that we've heard about, the undertakings you've heard about, will not take place, will not happen without a repair of higher education. But for a moment, I want to descend from those dramatic heights. What I really want to do is tell you a joke, a joke that Reagan told to the National Association of Evangelicals in 1983. The joke goes something like this. An evangelical minister and a politician arrive at heaven at the same time. Uh, St. Peter greets them warmly. St. Peter proceeds with the necessary formalities. And then St. Peter conducts the evangelical minister and the politician to their respective quarters. St. Peter's first stop is a humble room, single bed, a simple chair, a simple table. St. Peter turns to the evangelical minister and says, this is for you. The politician gulps. If that's what the evangelical minister gets, what is he, a politician, going to receive? Well, St. Peter uh, conducts him to the next stop. The politician finds himself in front of a magnificent mansion, sprawling grounds, manicured gardens and lawns, many servants bustling about. St. Peter says, this is your residence. Politician can't believe it. He stammers to St. Peter, how, how could this be? That good and holy man gets a simple room, and I, this magnificent mansion? St. Peter smiles, St. Peter chuckles, and he says, 
listen, you've got to understand how things operate here in heaven. We've got thousands and thousands of clergy up here. You're the first politician who's ever made it. <laughs> now, not all politicians are scoundrels, but more than a few are. As it turns out, this opinion, consistent with Neo's pessimistic view of human nature, this opinion actually undergirds the American constitutional order. American constitutional order seeks to secure governity, govern, seeks to secure liberty by limiting government. Why does the American constitutional order limit government? Because it assumes that many flawed individuals, indeed, many deeply flawed individuals, will gain high office. The American Constitution is not designed to enable virtuous men and women who may be elected to confer the benefits of their wisdom on the population. That's not its top priority. The top priority of the American Constitution is to enable the basic work of government to get done without the many flawed individuals who will gain high office from inflicting too much harm. Constitutional design, separation of powers, checks and balances, federalism. This is a crucial part of American exceptionalism. Even as this notion of limited government is fading from popular consciousness, government design will do a great deal to constrain the next president, whether that president is a Democrat or a Republican. That said, the deeply flawed candidates that the major parties have put in front, of, in front of the people tell us something about threats to American exceptionalism. So, too, do we learn something from the mounting populist discontent. Government sheer incompetence over the last several years explains much of this popular discontent. Legitimate, and grie- legitimate public grievances include a relatively stagnant economy, mounting government debt, $20 trillion and counting, a broken immigration system, a social security program hurtling toward insolvency, failed public schools, rising crime, soaring health care costs, and expanding health care bureaucracy, shrinking health care options, a politicized Justice Department, and a politicized IRS, and not least, a disheartening record abroad of failed interventions followed by feckless withdrawals and inept retrenchments. That's bad enough. That's bad enough. But there are still larger problems threaten constitutional government, American exceptionalism. I want to emphasize three this morning. One is the unraveling of civil society. Another is a weakening of our informal system of governing, the parties. And most important in my judgment is the debasement of liberal education. These are problems that go beyond this domestic policy or that foreign policy. These are problems that strike at the very roots of American self-government. Above all, as I said, I think American exceptionalism 
depends upon renewing liberal education. Now, why is that? Because without a proper liberal education, who really is going to understand the significance of the unraveling of civil society? Who really is going to appreciate the connection between the formal aspects of our constitutional system and the informal aspects? But before I get to civil society and the party system and liberal education, let me say something about left and right in America. This helps, I think, create the context in which these discussions should take place. Why is it, it seems with every election cycle, Democrats display relative unity and Republicans seem to be at one another's jugular, not just in 2016, also 2012 and 2008, 2000 and earlier. Why is that? One popular theory is that Democrats are more easygoing, more tolerant, more rational. According to this theory, which is popular, the problem with Republicans is that Republicans are by nature benighted, ornery, intolerant, and unreasonable. This theory, of course, is very popular among Democrats. <laughs> I have another theory. And this theory goes to a theory to explain relative democratic unity and Republican disunity. And this goes to the principles in which Democrats and Republicans are rooted. Democrats, by and large, are progressives. What is progressivism? Progressivism is a political movement, a school of thought that arose in the late 19th century. The progressives sought to combat social inequality and capitalist excess. How did they combat it? They wanted to expand government to regulate the economy and to redistribute wealth. Indeed, activist government to promote egalitarianism, equality in all spheres, became the raison d'etre of progressivism. Progressives speak very little, if at all, about the proper, uh, the proper structure of government. Progressives speak little, if at all, about the appropriate limits on government power. For progressives, the question is, what are the means to accomplish our egalitarian goals? The situation for conservatism is very different. In contrast to progressivism's shared egalitarianism, conservatism is in the American conservatism especially, but one could trace this all the way back to Edmund Burke, the dawn, modern conservatism. Conservatism is rooted in a fundamental tension. It is the tension between individual liberty, in its most rudimentary sense, this means doing as you wish, and traditional morality, its most elementary meaning, that means doing as has been done in the past. You can see this as a fundamental tension because sometimes doing as you please conflicts with how we've done things in the past. Now, American conservatism was born much later than progressivism. The distinctively American brand of conservatism is jolted into existence in the 1940s and early 1950s by what are perceived to be, and rightly perceived to be, two threats to liberty that are simultaneously understood to be, and they were, threats to traditional morality. I have in mind the massive expansion of government under the New Deal and the rise 
of Soviet communism, which is understood to be and was aggressive, expansionist, and totalitarian. Conservatism's two main strands, of course, are social conservatism and libertarianism. They reflect an authentic American constitutional tension between individual liberty and the traditional morality all of our founders supposed was essential for the defense, for the exercise, the responsible exercise of individual liberty. Now, it may seem that progressives have an advantage. It's easier to adhere to a single principle than seek to reconcile multiple principles. That's true. That's an advantage. But there's also a disadvantage. And the progressives are forced to deny features of the American constitutional order, whereas the tensions with which conservatives wrestle are, in fact, tensions that reflect the underlying logic of the American constitutional system. And now turn to these three deep structural causes of public anxiety and political dysfunction today, 2016. It seems to me, as I've already suggested, the richness of their principles puts conservatives in a better position to understand and deal with these problems, providing they get their act together. First problem, civil society is unraveling. What is civil society? Civil society is the host of voluntary associations and intermediate institutions that stand between, on the one side, the massive state, central government, and the solitary individual. These associations and institutions classically include the family, faith communities, uh, work, many parts of education, neighborhood associations, civic, civic associations, clubs, and the like. Civil society is unraveling today in part because of an escalating conflict, an escalating conflict between a growing government and an increasing demand for personal autonomy. What do I mean? On the one hand, government in America has never been larger, costlier, or more intrusive. On the other hand, Americans have never been more like have never been more author, averse to authority. Americans have never been more likely to live alone. Americans have never had more choices about where to live, how to dress, what to read, including at work, what to uh, listen to, what to view on your screens. We've never had more choices about whom to marry or to not marry. We've never had more choices about whom or what to worship, or not to worship at all. In other words, we have never been more inclined to view private conscience as the supreme standard. So you can see large forces are pulling in opposite directions. As government becomes more lumbering and more overbearing, we ask it to do more. We ask it to do more, but we become less willing to accept its authority over us. We are simultaneously, as individuals, growing more dependent and submissive to to distant authority and also more assertive and more self-centered, forces pulling us in opposite directions. Now, in his great work, Democracy in America, written in the 1830s, Tocqueville both emphasized the importance of a robust civil society to a healthy American order 
Tocqueville also anticipated its unraveling. In the last several years, important books by Robert Putnam, by Charles Murray, by Yuval Levin, most recently, have been published that have explored and documented this unraveling of civil society. The unraveling of civil society, especially of the family, has enormous implications for politics in America. That's because civil society, historically and properly, in a free society, is the site where we learn love and friendship. It's the place, civil society, especially the family, where we acquire moral intellectual virtues. Civil society, broadly understood, is the place where we learn to build community, to maintain community, and, yes, to reform and repair communities. So its unraveling is very serious. What can be done? Consistent with constitutional principles to begin to reweave civil society in America, two imperatives stand out. First, we should do everything in our power to shift power from Washington, D.C., to that level of government that is as close as as possible to the people over whom power is exercised. Second, we need to preserve but also reconfigure our social safety net by taking as much advantage as possible of market forces. These two imperatives, you could say, are liberal and democratic remedies for diseases incident, for the diseases incident to liberal democracy. In saying that, of course, I paraphrase Federal, James Madison's uh, uh, famous statement from Federalist Number 10. But are we capable today, America in 2016, are we capable of recognizing, are we capable of embracing, are we capable of implementing Madisonian reforms? This brings me to the second cause of public anxiety and political dysfunction, and that's the weakening of an informal aspect of constitutional government in America, and that informal aspect is the party system. By design, (coughs) excuse me, a few months ago, (coughs) in an Atlantic magazine cover story, the journalist Jonathan Rausch demonstrated that we're witnessing the enfeeblement of the party system. It's not that the party system somehow has a stranglehold in American politics. My colleague Mo Fiorina, from whom you'll be hearing in a little bit, has written a great deal over the years about this, the enfeeblement of informal systems of constitutional government in America. What do I mean? By design, the Constitution challenges political officials' conflicting interests to encourage bargaining and compromise. The Constitution actually was designed to be a kind of compromise-producing machine. But the Constitution only established basic political institutions. Constitution, as you know, is only about six or seven pages long. The multifaceted work of self-government required Americans to create a kind of second, unwritten, and informal set of political practices at all levels, from the nation to the states to the counties to cities 
to precincts and neighborhoods. In this informal system, parties, machines, and political brokers stood in between the voter, the solitary voter on the one hand, or the community of voters on the one hand, and distant elected officials in the far-off capital city. This informal system of parties, machines, and brokers facilitated the bargaining. It facilitated the compromise to which the Constitution is dedicated. Now, parties, machines, political brokers have always, let's face it, presented a somewhat unsavory spectacle. Reformers, with good intentions, wanted to curtail the dispensing of favors, the doling out of dollars, the peddling of influence. In fact, these reformers, sometimes bipartisan, sometimes conservatives, but by and large progressive reformers, succeeded all too well. They've nearly reformed our informal system of parties, machines, and brokers out of existence. Reformers replaced the old smoke-filled room, old smoke-filled room nominating process with primaries. They imposed very complicated regulations on money and politics. They diminished the importance of the security system, seniority system, in Congress. They instituted TV coverage of committees and subcommittee hearings on the congressional level. They eliminated earmarks and pork barrel spending. The reformers' aim was to eliminate corruption. Instead, they undermined in all these ways party authority. And in so doing, they impaired the capacity of our public officials to bargain and they thwarted the reformers' thwarted compromise. The reformers thereby subverted an overriding constitutional goal, bargaining and compromise, however unlovely it can sometimes be. What could be done? Well, we could begin by repealing restrictions on parties coordinating with their own candidates. We could lift restrictions on donating to parties. We could bring back earmarks, which in the worst case always accounted for a tiny part of the federal budget. But will the public buy such reforms? The case for them depends upon a knowledge of the interaction between the formal constitution and the informal unwritten constitution. But sad to say, knowledge of constitutional structure is sorely lacking today. And sad to say, universities are making the problem worse. Indeed, a third source of public anxiety and political defunction is the debasement of liberal education. As traditionally conceived, liberal education tempers the all-too-human tendency to portray those with whom we disagree as demonic, demented, altogether wrong. Liberal education cultivates the ability to explore moral and political questions from a variety of angles. It encourages our ability to put ourselves in someone else's shoes. Liberal education, properly conceived, promotes 
toleration, civility, and mutual respect. And on liberty, John Stuart Mill called the virtue that encourages many-sidedness. Many-sidedness. Liberal education cultivates many-sidedness. As currently practiced at our leading colleges and universities, however, liberal education is promoting single-sidedness. It's fostering polarization. How so? Consider first the assault on freedom of speech. Colleges and universities divide campuses into expansive safe spaces and narrow free speech zones. Colleges and universities institute trigger warnings, which are designed to shield students from discomforting facts and ideas. Colleges and universities police microaggressions. These are remarks that give offense, no matter how slight, no matter how unintentional, no matter how subjective. Our colleges and universities preach inclusion and exalt diversity of race and ethnicity and gender. That's, of course, all good. But at the same time, our colleges and universities harshly exclude alternative ideas and and dissenting voices. The administrative oversight of thought and discussion is making our students, and not a few faculty, both hypersensitive and hypercritical, a generation that is simultaneously hypersensitive and hypercritical. Second, there's the weakening of due process on campus. In disciplinary disciplinary proceedings involving accusations of sexual misconduct, universities are increasingly abolishing the presumption of innocence. Increasingly abolishing the presumption of innocence. Now, the Obama administration's Department of Education did not initiate this assault on due process. It predates the Obama administration. But the Department of Education, through the Office of Civil Rights, has been encouraging it on pain of being subject to costly federal investigation, on pain of losing federal funding. At a university like Stanford, that could mean three, four, five hundred million dollars a year. On pain of losing federal funding and being subject to costly investigation, universities have been directed by the Department of Education to severely weaken due process protections for the accused. By jettisoning the procedures that secure fundamental fairness in a free society, higher education is teaching students lawlessness. Finally, there is the repudiation of a core curriculum. This leaves students ignorant of their own civilization and ignorant of other civilizations. Moreover, the abandonment of a core curriculum deprives students of a common fund of ideas and texts and facts that enable them to both express their agreements and, not less important, to communicate their disagreements in a civilized way to one another. The Constitution, knowledge of which, of course, is essential to responsible political debate, is a case in point. Very few of our leading colleges and universities require students to study the principles of American self-government before graduation. Few of these same universities offer more than a few courses 
on the principles of American self-government for those students who want to obtain such knowledge. The hallowed curriculum is also a politicized curriculum. It is politicized as much by the conservatism that it excludes as by the progressivism that it promulgates. Few are the courses offered at any of our leading universities that feature even a single leading figure of American conservatism. Worse still, colleges and universities don't themselves teach the principles of liberal education, those principles that explain why all students ought to be introduced to both conservative ideas and progressive ideas. The classic of the genre, Mills on Liberty, at least in this country, has fallen into desuetude. So has Mills' key key contention. He who knows only his own side of the case knows little of that. He who knows only his own side of the case, of the case, of his case, knows little of that. The exclusion of conservative ideas from the college curriculum is illiberal in effect and often in intent. But the harms, the harms go well beyond campus life. The exclusion of conservative ideas teaches teaches left-leaning students to despise conservatism as unworthy of a seat at the table. Conservative students, meanwhile, see their intuitions and their ideas scornfully dismissed. Conservative students grow resentful and bittered. Small wonder that, after a generation of this, small wonder that our public discourse is corrupted and our politics is polarized. What would reasonable reform look like? Well, that's simple. Colleges and universities should introduce all students to the moral, politic, political, and economic principles of freedom. Colleges and universities should introduce all students to the continuities and conflicts that constitute Western civilization. And all colleges and universities should introduce students to some non-Western civilization. But I mean serious study. I don't mean slogans. I mean study of the history, the politics, the economics, the religious thought of some non-Western civilization. Furthermore, all colleges and universities should treat all members of of the campus community as free and equal individuals. They should not divide the campus into a class of victims and a class of oppressors. In practice, this means... In university disciplinary processes, the prince, the rules of fundamental and and fair fundamental fairness and due process should be upheld. And finally, all colleges and universities should entrench the practice of the unfettered exchange of ideas. Truly liberal education serves students' interests. It also serves the public interest. Truly liberal education would enable students, graduates, to grasp the vital role of a robust civil society in the American constitutional order. A truly liberal education would enable students to appreciate the formal and the informal aspects of American constitutional government. And a truly liberal education 
would form a citizenry more likely to be attra- more likely to attract and form a citizenry more likely to be attracted to truly worthy candidates for high office. In closing, I wish to recall the immortal words of Yankee great Yogi Berra, who at least according to legend said, prediction is difficult, especially of the future. (laughs) Nevertheless, nevertheless, I hazard two predictions. I hazard two predictions. First, no president will succeed in calming public anxiety and reducing political dysfunction without making progress in reweaving civil society and without making progress in restoring respect for the formal aspects of the Constitution and and restoring informal aspects of party governance. My second prediction, no president will succeed in these urgent endeavors so critical to the preservation of American exceptionalism unless our universities recover an appreciation of and provide students a properly liberal education. I hope I've provoked a question or two. Thank you.